Welcome to the Granary Church podcast. We're happy you could join us. For more information on the Granary Church, head to granary.org.au or follow our socials at the Granary Church. Did you notice that there's a lot of children and youth who aren't here? You may not have noticed their parents aren't as well. That's because there's a fellowship camp on this weekend and uh, quite a few people are up at Foster. And, um, but we're here. And how? thank you... Um, John and Clay and Mel for just amazing worship this morning. It was so beautiful. And thank you, Holy Spirit, because, you know, I'm finding my worship wouldn't make me cry because of the sense of the love of God, so tangible. So let's pray as we start. And as we pray, I just invite you to open your heart and mind up to the Holy Spirit and be very conscious of the fact that you are here um, a human being created in his image, that you have a soul that is precious enough to him for him to die for, that you might experience life. As Jesus says, what is it worth to gain the whole world but lose your soul? And he came that your soul could be filled with his life. And so, Father, as we present our souls, our hearts and our minds, the very essence of our being, may we be reminded of how much you love us each one of us, and as we sit here today, you understand our past, our present and our future. And you long to draw us closer to your presence today, that we may experience your love, your great, your greatness, your power, your compassion, your mercy, your goodness. I pray that for each one of us today, Lord, whatever we believe or think we believe is basically immaterial because you are good and way above all of us and we thank you. Speak to us all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are and almost at the end, actually, of our challenge on faith. And the reason we call it challenge is because we're inviting each one of us to be challenged. Jake's just talked to us about challenge. And that challenge in faith is no one can grow your faith for you. You actually have to grow it yourself. I was talking to someone recently who said to me, there came a point in her life when she realised that she always relied on advice from other people people who she felt had known God longer or knew their Bible better. And then one day she felt, what happens if they're not in my life? I need to learn how to hear the Holy Spirit myself because you need that in-depth relationship with him where you do hear him yourself. And so growing in faith is, is just growing in a relationship because faith is in someone that you know, the God that you know. You know his character, you know his ways, you know his voice. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. So we follow him because we know his voice. And that's why we're challenging ourselves to do that. It's just to question yourself and to say, it's like when I was a youth pastor, I'd read a book about Christian education actually. It was talking about raising young people who are freestanding Christians. That's what I'm believing for these guys down the front here. Because a freestanding Christian means this, that their faith is no longer dependent on their youth pastor, their pastor their small group leader, their mum, their dad, their friends. They know Jesus themselves. And what you see happening in the world is sometimes when someone in in leadership or some influence in your life has a crisis of faith, you have one too. And then you discover your faith was actually in that person more than in Jesus. And so I want us to all consider that as we consider growing in faith. Is your faith in Jesus? And do you wrestle with faith? That's okay. That's part of growing in relationship. All of relationship has wrestling along the way somehow. Just keep wrestling with people who are pushing you closer and closer 
to Jesus so that you are strong. And so today we're looking at an aspect of faith that is a little bit different to what we've looked at. We've been looking at God doing things through us with our, through faith, through many people in the Old Testament. But today we're looking at one of these people in the Old Testament, but the, the, I believe the bedrock of his faith that enabled him to do things that were actually outstanding. And this is um, David. And a couple of weeks ago I spoke about David. David, um, if you don't know the Old Testament very well, David was a shepherd boy who became a king. And a few weeks ago we were talking about him when he was a shepherd boy and he actually had a deep relationship with God. He knew him. He, could, he knew his character. He knew his ways. He could hear his voice. He worshipped him. And God grew him in faith to the point that he slaughtered the giant Goliath. When the entire Israeli army was petrified, he had the faith because he knew the character and nature of God. And since then... Since that story, David goes on, um, he becomes the king. But King Saul, who he was with at the uh, battle against Goliath, actually became jealous of David because as David um, became more influential, he hated that. And so he tried to kill David. David fled. He had some really tough times in his life. And then he eventually became king and he had massive victories in his life and things were going really well. He is one of the the most loved um, kings of Israel. He's famous. He's in the line of Jesus. Okay, so here we've got this. He, he wrote predominant, the predominant, most of the Psalms that you read in the book of Psalms. But this is what happened to David. When he's sitting with everything in his beautiful palace, one night he's up on his, in his palace and he looks down and the roofs in um, the, that area of the, of the world had, were flat roofs and he sees a woman bathing and he wants that woman. And so because he's king, he can basically have anything that he wants. And he gets her and she falls pregnant. And now he has a problem. He had a problem before. It's just that when she's pregnant, he has a bigger problem. Um, because now people will know what he did. See, before that, he could do it without people knowing about it. Except for her. And she's not going to say anything because she's a woman in the days when women didn't have a voice. And he's the king. But now he's got a problem. And so he decides, as we all do, how to cover up the problem. And um, a plan comes that he'll get his, her husband, Uriah, home from the war that he's in. He's a leader in the army. And um, send him home for a few nights. Then everyone will think the baby is his. But Uriah is such a good and faithful man. He knows that he has to stay focused on the job so he won't go home. So he now is going to have to have find a better plan. And so he sends orders for Uriah to be put on the front line of the battle where people are killed and he is killed. And he thinks he's covered up what he did. You know, when you hear that, how do you feel about him? How you feel about him is very important right now for the rest of the message. How do you feel about him? Just remember, this is what happened. A prophet named Nathan was sent to David. You had to be brave to be a prophet in these days because you've got some pretty scary jobs and he's a scary job because you're going to the king. And so Nathan turns, comes to David and he says, when he came to him, I'm reading from um, 2 Samuel 12. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, he grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, 
drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Nathan just doesn't tell the story. He probably told it in greater detail than that and he uses a lot of emotion so you can feel the relationship between this poor man and this lamb. Now, a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, I want you to think of your reaction to David first and now your reaction when you hear this. And I'm sure you can all see straight away that Nathan is talking about David. There's no real poor man It's actually David he's talking about. Obvious to us because we're standing from afar. This is what what happened. David burned with anger against the man and he said to Nathan, Surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, presumably before he dies or his family has to, because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So the second thing to ask yourself, I've asked you how you felt when you heard what David did. And the second thing to ask is, how does God's voice sound to you in that? I mean, you heard me read it, so I've put some sort of expression into it. But you know, like when you get an email or a text, you don't always know the intention of the voice. That's a strange thing, unless you can actually hear the person. When um, my son Caleb was filming for Baptist World Aid once in um, Bangladesh and there were some riots there and he was waiting in um, Thailand to go in and uh, as many of you know, I have a son who died and, um, but it was when we were sort of overcoming our grief and so Caleb's texting and saying, we're not sure if we'll go in there yet because of the riots and I text and say, don't you dare die. And he replies, who is this? I said, it's mum. It's not mum. Mum wouldn't say that. It is me. I am saying this. He can't hear the intonation. In the end, I rang him. I said, it's me. I just meant a little joke. Oh, okay. I didn't know it was you. There was this habit in my family that my boys used to do is take my phone and send mean texts, like, get home now, you lazy thing. And so... You're never quite sure if it's me or not. It was me. But he couldn't hear the intonation. When I told him how I'm saying it, he goes, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds like you. But it didn't. So how does God sound to you here? Because how God sounds to you may not be right. Because you have a view of God that needs to be perfected as life goes on. And if you want to know what God is like, Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. And you see his compassion and his love and his mercy. And you need to hear the love of God in that. Hear the love of God when he says, and if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Incredible love of God. Why don't you come to me? Now, you know, why did God allow David? Why didn't God stop him? 
along the way from doing this horrendous thing. And I think at this point, David is going to have an incredible encounter of the living God. Now, there's two things here I see before we move on that we need to look at. The first thing is David couldn't see himself. And we can look at it and think, why on earth couldn't he see himself? But then I would say to us, can you really see yourself? How well do you see yourself? You know, the thing they say about blind spots is you, people say to you, you have blind spots, and you say, no, I don't. But the thing is, that's, they're blind spots. You cannot see them. It's actually impossible. And it's quite tormenting to think that there is something about yourself that you can't see. And even if you say, I'm trying really hard to see it, you can't, it's impossible because it is your blind spot. Unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see it. And so we have these blind spots and we can't see ourselves. And because of that, we actually see what we do do that's good and we miss what we don't do or what we do do that's not good. And therefore we have a picture of ourselves as being really good because this is what David is doing. Like he's done a lot of good things. So doesn't the goodness that he's done outweigh this one thing? But now it's not just about your list of good and bad. It's actually seeing yourself totally before God. But the other thing to notice here is your first response to what David had done. And if in your response to what David had done, you think, whoa, at least I'm not like that, you have a problem. And it's a serious problem we all have as human beings and it started with the fall of human beings in with Adam and Eve and here is the problem when Adam and Eve first ate this fruit which we think was a fruit I felt God talk, telling, talking to me about this recently I woke up on a Saturday morning and I felt God saying I want you to go and revisit the fruit of the tree there's a few things in my life I keep coming back to revisit to see more and more of what God is saying one is the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil one is the book of Job it sounds really exciting, doesn't it? But there's <laughs> this poor melancholic girl. But there's a lot of power in here. And um, I'll talk another day about the book of Job. It's becoming more exciting. But with this, the fruit of the tree and the knowledge of good and evil. Think, okay, I'll have my quiet time in a moment and I will have it. So for breakfast, I had a mango. And as I'm sitting looking at that mango, I always remember how Graham, my husband here, says, um, they would not have been tempted by an apple. It had to be a mango. And uh, it's reminding me to go and uh, look at this passage again. So I go looking at it and doing some research on it. It wasn't a physical piece of fruit anyway. Then when I started to do a Google search, honestly, people have written articles on maybe it was a fig. I think, oh my goodness, it doesn't actually matter whether it was a fig, an apple, a mango or pomegranate or whatever it was because the fruit in the Bible is the result of something. It doesn't mean that they went and they picked up a physical piece of fruit and eat it, ate it and bang, they were dead. It's the result of the knowledge of good and evil. And what it's saying is they had two choices. They walk in the garden with the Lord and he's very present with them and he leads them and he guides them and he talks to them and they're best friends and they don't have to follow a rule book because they live with him and they just do everything he says to do. As, as Jesus said, I do what the Father set to, is doing and I say what the Father is saying. That's it. That's simply walking in the Holy Spirit. Or you have this choice. You too want to gain the knowledge of good and evil so you can put people into categories. And that's what we do as human beings. We put people into categories. And until we, as the followers of Jesus, get to the point where it's a totally level playing field, 
we will not have our hearts broken for those who don't yet know him. And that's what Jesus is inviting us back into. Religion doesn't do it. He's inviting us into this beautiful, warm relationship with him. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing and I only say what I hear the Father saying. Deep, intimate relationship. It's all about relationship. Jesus didn't need a book of rules. He had this incredibly deep relationship with the Father. And they had that, but they wanted this fruit. Fruit in the scriptures is actually the result of something. And what they wanted was the result of what God had to have power over people, tell them what to do, to judge the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts, to work out what's good and bad. It says in the scriptures that man looks from the outside but God looks at the heart. And we want that. And if you looked at David when I read that story and you thought, at least I didn't do that, he's still suffering from that problem that Jesus came to redeem us from where we see how we weigh people up. See, judgment is when you create levels for different people and you weigh them all up. And until we all come to see ourselves as the same, you might think, well, I haven't committed adultery and murder. Maybe you have. Because we all have. Because Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And if you're angry with your brother or sister, you committed murder. So probably we're all guilty. But even then we look and think, no, but it's not as bad as real doing it. So we're still judgmental. And God is wanting to get us to the point of seeing this level playing field of all humanity. Totally level playing field. And while we, ever, or whatever we don't have that totally level playing field, we conceal who we really are from each other. Because we know that people will put me in a category. If I tell you I've done this or I've done this, you get suddenly put into a category and someone will be saying, oh, at least I haven't done that. And if you think of anyone in the world and you think, well, at least I'm not like that, then you haven't fully understood the grace of God and the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Anyone. And so I ask you to take a moment to think, is there anyone in the world that you think of, at least I am not like that? At least I'm not like that. Is there someone? And is there someone? Don't, don't beat yourself up. Ask God to give you his heart for people because he loves us all exactly the same. Jesus tells this story in Luke 18. It says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. That means someone who's really um, a religious leader who understands the law incredibly well. And the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Now, you may not have said that prayer exactly, but it is a prayer that is in a lot of human hearts, in the church and outside the church. Read articles in the news that say, basically, I'm glad I'm not like that person. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. And I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
Do you know, we come down in judgment on people when we say, if only they'd done this or if only they'd done that. And that is where we like to eat from the fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God is calling us back into this deep, intimate relationship with him where, first of all, we see ourselves. And if we don't see ourselves, we won't repent of who we really are and we won't have the freedom of receiving his grace and his mercy and experiencing the love of the Father, which David experienced in this case. We will create levels for people and it's good to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal who we really are because if at any stage you are like this Pharisee who says, I'm glad I'm not like that person, you actually haven't seen the depth of your soul and your need for a saviour. And I'm not asking you to share that with anyone. Keep it between you and God. But ask God to break your heart that you would see his mercy for you poured out on the cross and what it actually means. Because if you think in you there was any goodness that earned his sacrificial death on the cross, you don't get it yet. But until we come to the point where we actually realise that without him we are nothing and we truly want to repent and we want the Lord to open us our eyes so that we, like David, can have our eyes opened. What a blessing to this man that he had an opportunity to see himself. And it hurt. But if we can have that opportunity to see ourselves, life will be filling us to overflowing and we begin to love people, actually love people actually love them with the same love of God. The love of God that we saw on the cross when Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And you could look and think they looked like they know what they were doing. They were nailing him to a cross. But they don't know what they're doing. And it's the same with everyone, all of us, all of us in the world. And so, David, there's a psalm, which is a song, which is recorded as Psalm 51 that he wrote... And this is his response. And may we today, as we allow the Holy Spirit to see ourselves, may we ask God to give us the same response. Because I, be, I really believe this response is a gift from God. It's not even something you are good enough to work out yourselves. It's a gift from God to have a soft heart before God. And he says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And you notice that his first call of repentance is not have mercy on me, O oh God, because even though I did this, I've done some really good things. Even though I did this, I tithe not 10%, 11% every week. I'm pretty good. I serve at Granary Care. I'm nice to my neighbour. I would actually say in our street, our neighbour is nicer to us. She puts our bins out every Monday night, not just ours, everyone in the whole street um, she puts them out and she drags them in on Tuesday morning. And that's because all our bins are piled up against one wall because it's like a street of terrace houses. She doesn't go down people's driveways. But she's so good. But if you start counting your goodness before God, you don't understand that um, we're not great. And our own goodness can stop us being great. And so he doesn't say, have mercy on my God according to my goodness or the things I've done or anything or even because I'm repenting. Have mercy on God because of you, because of your unfailing love and your great compassion. And here is his opportunity to experience real love, unfailing love, compassionate love, love that looks beyond who you are. And then he says, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now just think, what does that actually mean? How can, have, how can it be blotted out, washed away and cleansed? And what does that feel like? 
once I was um, speaking at St Philip's Chapel to middle and senior school students with my son Josh. We were being interviewed. Josh is my oldest son. And we were being interviewed on um, how to have a nice adult relationship with your child. And so all the kids are sitting there. Some of you guys were probably there. And the guy um, interviewing said, so tell us about when Josh was naughty. And actually all the kids want to hear that, when he was naughty. And because he's a teacher there, okay, so you have to understand that everyone wants to know that their teacher, who um, now calls the rules, was once naughty, okay. It's like I've discovered when you're a grandparent and you watch your kids trying to make everyone obe obedient, you like to be naughty. You like to get the chocolate out when you're not quite meant to have the chocolate. <laughs> All my life I've taught you now it's my time to rebel. So they say to, um, to me, so tell us when Josh was naughty. And I sat there, I'm thinking, oh, when was Josh naughty? And, I'm, and the room full of kids, so I'm thinking, I've got to have some answer. And I actually couldn't think of something. And then I realised I'd waited for too long to say something, so I just said, oh, Josh can probably tell you a time when he was naughty. And he did, straight away. And um, I thought, oh, that's right, I remember that was really naughty. And when I went home, I thought, I couldn't, I, and I couldn't remember anything. And I felt God say to me, he's like this, I forget as well. He has the ability to forget. We have this horrible ability to remember what everyone did that was wrong. But God has this outstanding ability to forget. What a gift. Imagine if we all had that ability to forget and just keep loving people like God. And if we, if we can honestly come before God with our own sin and receive his forgiveness and it's blotted out, our ability to love and forget will grow because we'll have his nature in us and not that judgmental nature that we've taken on. He forgets. And how beautiful then, that's how God feels. He forgets and he just delights in us. Bev mentioned it last week when she talked about Abraham. If you didn't hear it, go and listen to the podcast, how the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says Abraham never wavered in his faith, but if you look in the Old Testament, he messed up lots. But because through the lens of Jesus who forgives, God just sees that he kept getting up. As she said, if you fall down 500 times, get up 501. That's what God is looking for. You keep coming back. And God called David, this guy who did all this stuff, a man after his own heart. Not because he was perfect, but because he kept getting up, being real about himself and coming back. And if we can be like that, we can become a church where we're actually all real with God and each other. And we keep coming back to him and he keeps forgiving us. And then we have the freedom of him washing it away and we, it doesn't affect us. As, as what, you don't have this sense of guilt and condemnation and secrecy over yourself all the time. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about it like this in Philippians 3. He talks about his past as like dung or rubbish. And it's like this. When you put your whiz bin out, do you get up the next day and think, I really miss that rubbish. I really miss it. I'm thinking about it a lot. I just remember everything that was in that bin. It's gone. You just forget it. You're actually glad that it's gone. I really love it when the rubbish goes. I don't know if you're like this. I like it when the kitchen bench is clean and the garbage is empty because it feels like it's a fresh start. And when you come to Jesus, the kitchen bench is clean and the garbage bin's empty. And it's an amazing thing. He's the only one who can forgive and forget. And he gives you the ability to do it as well. 
And David says this, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And sometimes we look at that and think, why are we saying that little children are evil? We're saying we're all self-centred. Go and volunteer out there in kids' ministry and you won't see a natural propensity to share toys because it's all in us from the start. It doesn't mean we're all running around planning evil things, but there is self-focusedness so that, like David, even when Nathan came with a story, he couldn't see himself. You desire, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb, and that is what God's looking for. He's not looking for your good works. They will come. They come as a result of him filling you. But he's looking for faithfulness because this is a relationship. It's not a religion. In a religion, you have to do things. In a relationship, you pull close to each other. You honour each other. You bless each other. You listen to each other. You support each other. You value each other. That is called being faithful. And God is saying, I'm faithful to you. I desire for you to be faithful to me. That's what I'm looking for, faithfulness. And when you stay faithful to him, goodness comes as a result. But if you think your goodness is going to earn you something, you've missed the point of this relationship. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Only he can create a pure, heart, a pure heart and only he can give you a steadfast spirit. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Because what you see, it says about John, where John writes about Jesus and it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This is not a religion. This is a relationship of God being very present with you. And on the day of Pentecost, when the church was first birthed, everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit, which means filled with the very, very presence of God. And he's calling us to be filled every day with his presence. And that's why his whole prayer is, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. The earnest desire of every heart here and every heart who's not here in every religion in the world is this, to be filled with the presence of the God who is love. Every heart desires that. Unfortunately, every heart doesn't realise that and sometimes the church has portrayed such a bad image of God that people don't want to have anything to do with him. And God is calling us back to be people of repentant hearts who weep, who weep for people, who see ourselves as no different to anyone else. You know, sometimes I heard Tim Keller say recently that we see the church often sees two groups of people in the world, good and bad, and we're the good and everyone else is bad, and that's our problem. There are actually two groups of people in the world the ones who have actually experienced the love of God and those who are still yearning for it. And there's no difference. Everyone is the same level playing field of sin. Even once you've been forgiven, you're still on the same level playing field. And even the righteousness that you find in Christ is his. It's not yours. You are just enveloped in his. You are still someone who needs a saviour. And whenever we see ourselves as superior, we're like that Pharisee. And I believe the church is filled with, this is the church worldwide, it's filled with lots of Pharisees because we pride ourselves on our own self-righteousness and then we cause others to hide their sins from each other because we might be put into a group. We don't want to be put into a group. I just want to be put into one group of those who 
as sinners who need a saviour, to be loved by him and to be enveloped into his presence. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me and then I will teach transgressors your way and that way is mercy and compassion so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. A a spirit that is not broken is one that is still very self-willed and thinks you have control of life. It's only when a tragedy happens that you realise you don't, but you still try to pull it back together. A broken and a contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. And then he says this at the end. I really like this. He says, may it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. This is the king. And you can see what's happened to him. He's become arrogant because everything is so done so well for him that he's moved from thinking everything is good because of the mercy of God And he's translated it now to everything is good because of me. And in his humility, he says, God, you build up the walls of Jerusalem. I used to think it was me who was so amazing. And now I discovered it's not me. It's actually you and it's all your grace and your mercy. And what a freeing place to be in. And I believe this is what God is doing amongst us. As we actually come to the end of ourselves and allow God to show us our blind spots like he showed David and to be confronted with who we really are and to truly come and repent. Repent doesn't mean saying sorry. It means actually acknowledging who you are. Sorry is part of it, but it's, it's more than that. It's awareness of who you are and it's a turning. It's a turning to the God who loves you, who shows compassion and mercy on you. It's a turning of your heart and your mind to have a soft heart towards him. And the result of that will be a soft heart towards other people. I was reading this story this week about St. Augustine. He was like from the 4th century or something. So it's back a long time. And uh, it says this. He's like one of the big heroes. Which is, just before I read this, you know, we have these big heroes of faith. Um, Hebrews 11 is like the big heroes of the faith. If you don't know your Bible, open it up, read about Abraham and Isaac and Gideon and all these amazing, amazing people. But if you read their whole story, they weren't perfect. They were far from it. They messed up really, really badly. And yet they're called heroes of faith. And why are they called heroes of faith? They're not called heroes of always getting it right. They're called heroes of faith because they keep coming back and asking God to build up their faith. They say, hey, I got this wrong and he shows compassion and mercy and they come back. That's what a hero of faith is. And St. Augustine is one of these amazing heroes that people quote all the time. And um, this is the story. St. Augustine wasn't always a saint. He was an ambitious, arrogant, promiscuous young man with a vision of making a name for himself in the elite circles of Rome. He fathered a child out of wedlock and was controlled by pride and lust. He's famous for saying, give me chastity and temperance, but not yet. His mother, Monica, was a godly woman whose heart was broken by his prodigal ways. She had raised him in the faith, sought to instruct him in the way of Jesus and urged him to turn toward the light. Nothing seemed to work, so she began to seek the Lord for her son with holy desperation. Monica's prayers began to run out of words. Her prayers turned to tears. 
She would go to the church and cry out for his salvation, but nothing seemed to change. She would call upon the Lord with no tangible effect. Her desperation increased and drove her to seek counsel from the Bishop Ambrose as to what to do. He struggled with how to advise her in her agony of grief for Augustine's soul. At last, he grew impatient and said, Leave me and go in peace. It cannot be that the son of these tears should be lost. And he wasn't. And you know, when you love someone like that, you will weep for them. And if you look at people and think, at least I'm not like that, you haven't got to the point of weeping for them. But if you can allow God to reveal your heart and to, to know that you are no better than anyone else and you've experienced the love and the mercy of God, then you'll start to weep for them. And I believe God is calling us to weep like she did and to ask, he's asking us to come to him and give us the tears that he has for those who haven't yet experienced his love and to see all people as equal and to ask God to open our eyes that we can see ourselves because when we actually see ourselves, then we truly experience the grace and the mercy of God and then we get on our knees and we weep for those who haven't yet experienced it. And we no longer look at what we, they do, but we look at who they are, children of God. And Jesus gave his life for them. And you and I have been entrusted with that good news, the forgiveness of sins, that all people's sins have actually been forgiven, but not everyone has received their pardon. That's the only difference. And you may have already come to Jesus and received your pardon. And as you do that, in exchange for that, you're invited into his family and you get to go and share the same grace and forgiveness that he showed you. And you only do it by staying really close to him and having his heart for people. So I'd just like to ask the worship team to come back up. And um, I'd just like us to sit quietly as they sing, You're a good, good father. And I loved what you did at the start, Jake, to, um, to pray over Turkey with that song. And I'd just invite you, as you, just, you can sit, stand, do whatever you like, kneel, whatever you like, but just go into the presence that David talks about, the presence of the father and ask him to see yourself and ask him to break your heart for someone else. Not to, to judge them, not to say I'm better than them, but to, as you see yourself, to see the mercy that you have received and then ask God to break your heart for someone else because the greatest faith we can have is to, to see our sins washed away and to actually believe it and then to believe that God would rescue someone else and he's calling us to be people of faith in that area. So let's just have a time where we just listen to God through that. Thank you for listening to our Sunday podcast. If you enjoyed it, either subscribe or follow on the podcast app that you use to keep up to date on when our next Sunday podcast gets released. Have a safe and blessed week.